Welcome to the podcast of ideas. What you're about to hear is a recording from the Economy Forum which took place on Wednesday the 29th of April 2020. This is the first in a two-part series looking at how the pandemic has affected different parts of the world. Here, Daniel Benamy and Sabine Beppler-Spahl will talk about Germany and the developing world. In the chair is Rob Lyons. I'm Rob Lyons. Welcome to the Economy Forum. This evening is going to be a little bit different um, to our normal discussions, as we're basically offering two for the price of one. Uh, two shorter discussions in one uh, event. So part of, it's part of a series that we're going to do looking at um, COVID-19 uh, and its impacts across different parts of the world economy. Uh, so tonight uh, we'll be looking at the developing world and we'll be looking specifically at Germany as well. Next week we're going to be doing a session on China and then hopefully the following week we'll do a session on the United States. So hopefully over the next three weeks we'll get a pretty good survey of the major areas in the world economy and just and not just look at the UK and what's happening here as well. <clears throat> so uh, in the first part of tonight's discussion we'll be looking at how the pandemic is affecting the developing world. What that, while that means covering some very different economies across the world. There are many aspects to how poorer countries will be affected uh, that they have in common, something that has been mostly lost in the discussion on COVID-19 in the UK and other developed countries. And in the second part, as I said, we'll be looking specifically at Germany. So from, from a UK point of view, the German government is regarded as having dealt with the pandemic pretty well. Be interesting to see if that's the view that's taken in Germany. Uh, moreover, what are the economic impacts that are, uh, that are likely to happen there? What is the context in which all of this is happening? What the state was the German economy in going into this uh, pandemic? So I think one of the things that's going to come out in common from, from both parts of that discussion tonight is looking at who's going to suffer from uh, this pandemic and the policies that are being used to combat it. Uh, before I introduce the speakers, just a quick word from our sponsors, as it were. Uh, the Academy of Ideas is continuing to work throughout the crisis. None of our staff have been furloughed. In fact, we're working harder than ever. Um, all our in online events during the crisis will be free and available to anyone with the means to log on. And we'd be really grateful if you can consider giving us a donation, whether it's large or small, that doesn't matter. Um, just uh, your, your help will be greatly appreciated. And if you do want to give a donation, go to academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. Right, to our speakers. So introducing the discussion on the developing world in the first part will be Daniel Benami. He's a journalist and author. Uh, his books are uh, Ferraris for All in Defense of Economic Progress and Cowardly Capitalism. And in the second part of the discussion, we'll be hearing from Sabina Beppler-Sapal, uh, author of a book about Brexit, but in German. I'm not going to pronounce it. <laughs> and she's the Germany correspondent for Spiked. So without too much further ado, I'm going to introduce Daniel. Okay, uh, thanks Rob and hello everyone. We've been bombarded with statistics over this crisis, over the COVID crisis, and a lot of us have become almost amateur epidemiologists following all these statistics. But one of these statistics that really struck me, and it's an old statistic, it predates the crisis, but the World Bank and the United Nations have been reminding us of this, if we follow the developing world, is that 3 billion people, that's 3,000 million people, 40% of the world's population don't have access to proper hand washing and soap. Uh, so even if they have running water, it's 
and a lot of them don't, but it's probably outside their house somewhere. It's probably in shared facilities with other people. So things that we in the West take for granted, really, really basic precautions in relation to hygiene, it's not even an option for a very high proportion of the world's population. So I think we need to bear that in mind in relation to this discussion. But there is another way of interpreting that statistic, which is also very important, which is these are very, to a greater or lesser extent, poor economies. And I would argue that that makes those economies more vulnerable to the crisis. It could have more of a damaging human impact uh, than for the developed Western economies. And of course, it's very bad in the West. I'm not denying that for one moment. But for the poorer countries, it could be even worse. So if there's one takeaway from, the, from this part of the discussion on the developing world, I think it is that even if there isn't a big health impact in the developing world, and there's a debate about this, I think there probably will be. But even if there isn't, because of the shock of the West and falling demand from the West and so on, the poorer countries of the world are going to face a, a really big economic shock. And it's going to be really nasty for them. So what I want to argue is that, in fact, they're facing several different interrelated shocks, not just one shock. So there's the pandemic itself, which is very clear, can be lethal and can, you know, kill a lot of people. And that is a very important thing. I'm not pl uh, playing that down for one moment. That should be separated, though, from the economic impact of the shutdown. Uh, and also, in fact, the human impact of the shutdown, because... I think people are becoming more aware in the West that the shutdown has damaging, not just economic consequences, but also health consequences as well, both of which are very important. Then there's the economic impact of falling demand from the West. Uh, and then finally, there are uh, more difficult financial conditions, which I'll explain. So weakening currencies, becoming more expensive for those countries to service their debt, so this, they're going to suffer at least five different crises, not just one. That's very important to uh, bear in mind. And before sketching them, I should see what is sometimes called a health warning, probably not appropriate in this context. But as Rob said, I'm talking about a very large and diverse universe. It's probably easier to talk about uh, or to highlight the countries I'm not talking about than the countries I am talking about. So I'm not talking about the developing world of Western Europe and North America. Uh, I also am not going to talk about, I think countries like South Korea and Taiwan and Singapore, I wouldn't count them as developing myself, I count them as developed. So uh, I'm not going to talk about them. And I'm not going to talk about China, because China, simply because China is the subject of next week's discussion, so I want to leave that out of the mix. But even then, I've done a rough calculation. I, I, I'm talking at least in general terms, about 140 countries, roughly, with a total population of about 5 billion people, uh, roughly two-thirds of the world's population. And they vary, in, in, they vary in lots of ways, in fact, but even in relation to their income, at the top end of that, you have countries like Malaysia and Turkey that are, on average, their, their income per, per head, their GDP per head is about... $30,000, maybe slightly less, to some countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi, uh, whose income per head is less than $1,000. So the, this is a very varied universe of countries. So 
I'm not going to talk about any single country in any great detail. I'm not claiming to be an expert in the details of each country. But what I am going to try to do, and I think it's very important, is to just develop a general framework which we can then start to apply to different countries. And people who know more about individual countries can make contributions along those lines if they want to. I, I think it's pretty clear that to a greater or lesser extent, uh, the uh, countries of the developing world don't have the health resources that we have in the West to deal with the pandemic. And Africa and probably the Indian subcontinent as well, uh, South Asia, including uh, Pakistan and Sri Lanka, they're probably the most obvious example of that. So if you take Africa, for example, uh, an estimate from McKinsey, the management consultancy, is that in the entire continent of Africa, that is 1.3 billion, another billion, 1.3 billion people, there are only 20,000 intensive care beds in Africa. So obviously you can only handle a fraction uh, of the population uh, if there is a big crisis. Uh, social distancing. Again, we take that this completely for granted now in the West that social distancing, whether you know, some governments say 1.5 meters, two meters, whatever it is, uh, social distancing has been taken for granted as a way of dealing with the crisis. But it's not really an option for a lot of people living in the poorer countries. If they're in crowded slums or informal settlements, as they're called in Johannesburg, if they're in Lagos, if they're in Mumbai, if they're in Cairo, these are really, really crowded people, uh, crowded places. Uh, they often don't have their individual water supply in their houses. They often don't have their own toilets in their houses. They have shared facilities. And so they can't, do, they, they can't wash their hands, at least not at home. They can't do social distancing. They probably can't afford masks. Uh, testing can't really be done on a very large scale. So dealing with the pandemic is obviously going to be very, very difficult for these countries. There are people who argue, and I don't really want to get into this uh, discussion in a big way, there are people who argue that, again, Africa in particular has some natural advantages in relation to the pandemic. So they'll say, for example, that the average age is, I've heard different estimates, but about the median age is about 20 in Africa. So in other words, half of the population is above the age of 20, half the population is below the age of 20. And so because it's a young population, there is an argument that in that respect, they'll be less vulnerable to uh, COVID-19. Uh, and there are people who argue, including medical people, that uh, virus is less virulent in hot weather. So again, maybe that's a, a counter tendency. Well, you've got to put that against the fact that many, many millions of people in these countries are suffering from HIV AIDS. So even if they're only 20 years old, for example, they are immunocompromised, which means that they are very prone to getting the virus. It could be a huge problem for them, even if they're young. Uh, and we should remember also that these countries are already suffering in a big way from other communicable diseases like malaria, tuberculosis, Ebola. People haven't noticed on the whole, but Ebola is making a comeback in some parts of Africa, like the Democratic Republic of Congo. So we in the West talk about flat, flattening the curve to stop the health systems becoming overloaded by these different diseases. But in, in Africa and many other parts of the developing world, flattening the curve is not really an option because they're already really overloaded health systems that cannot deal with the health challenges they face. 
And it's worth noting, although this kind of merges with the next part of my discussion, that because of the lockdown, there is an argument that the other diseases that these countries suffer will be worse. So, for example, I've been following a discussion in India about tuberculosis. And just in an average day, over a thousand people in India die of tuberculosis. So a huge number, not, not talked about in the West, when we talk about tuberculosis, tuberculosis in, in India, not very often. But because of the shutdown, it means people can't go to doctors, samples can't be sent to labs. So it's pretty likely more people will die of tuberculosis because not directly because of the COVID pandemic, although often it's the same people who are vulnerable to both, but because of the shutdown. And uh, similarly in Africa, because of the disruption, there's likely to be less uh, spraying of mosquitoes, less bed net distribution, less provision of anti-malarial drugs. So it's quite likely, even if COVID-19 doesn't become a big thing, and as I say, that's a debate, you know, we can have that, but I don't think it's central to what I'm saying. It's quite likely the, the impact of these other diseases like malaria and tuberculosis, which is already very serious, will become even worse uh, as a result of the measures taken to quell COVID-19. Now that leads to my second of the effects, which is the, the impact of the domestic shutdown in the developing world. So just as we've had in the West, in the, uh, uh, across the developing world, in most countries there have been shutdown policies where people have been told to socially distance, stay at home, don't mix with each other, but it's just not really not uh, feasible, not an option for a lot of people. So uh, people, so for example, if, you're, if you work in the informal economy, which is not really a term used in the West very much, but that means if you're just a day labourer or you're just a kind of small businessman who just make money from uh, selling bits and pieces by the side of the, the street, then you immediately lose your income if you're forced to stay at home. You immediately face starvation if you're forced to stay at home. Someone who I think is on this call sent me a, a, a news cutting in South Africa about a woman who was arrested. She was selling peanuts, boiled eggs and biscuits in a Soweto suburb, you know, presumably trying to make, you know, make a living. People, people like that don't really have savings. They just need to make a, a living uh, through any means they can but arrested by the police for doing that. So that is not a direct effect of the pandemic, that is an effect of the, the shutdown to deal with the pandemic. And it can be worse for migrant workers within these countries who uh, are often uh, in, for, in the informal sector too, because they don't even have a family to fall back on. So if you're a migrant worker, say in, you're working in Bombay, for example, and your village is several hundred kilometers away, and you're told you have to stay at home. I mean, you can't, you can't really stay at home. What can you do? So many of them have tried to walk home, uh, very long distances. Uh, many of them have been, have been forced to just stay uh, where they are in you know, big buildings, offices, whatever, and really facing starvation very, very quickly. Uh, so for example, there are figures from the World Food Programme, which is part of the UN, that says that people suffering from acute hunger and starvation, that number is likely to increase this year from 135 million to 265 million. 
So again, that's the effect of the lockdown. And of course, these countries don't really have the resources that we have in the West in terms of countering the economic impact of the lockdown. So in Britain, for example, you know, there are various schemes to help people if they're out of work. You know, we can talk about the shortcomings of those schemes, uh, but they do exist. And the Bank of England pumps money into the economy to keep the economy ticking over. But the poorer countries don't have the resources to do that, or if they do have the resources, they have it to a much more limited extent. So, so far, I've talked about the health and health-related effects within the poorer countries. But it's really, really important to bear in mind that the slump in demand from Western goods and the hibernation of the Western economies, the self-imposed hibernation of Western economies, that would have a huge effect on the developing world, even if COVID-19 doesn't spread very badly. So, for example, if you're in Kenya, you know, it's very important for Kenyans to sell cut flowers to the European markets. You know, you, you buy your flowers in Tesco or wherever, uh, and they often come from places like Kenya. But if people aren't buying those flowers, or if you can't cultivate those flowers, then you know you have a big hit on your income, and that is very, very important. There is a differential effect in terms of commodity exports. So in other words, those countries that rely on exporting commodities, including oil, will be hit particularly hard because, of course, the West is using much less oil, uh, and China as well, in fact, using much less oil because of the uh, economic slump. So countries like Angola, Nigeria, Venezuela, Mexico, will all be hit very hard because they'll lose the income from oil, people using less oil, and of course, oil prices and other commodity prices falling very sharply. Then there are remittances. Again, not a subject talked about very much in the West, but actually hugely, hugely important. So in other words, the people you might see on the streets of uh, Europe or maybe North America, from Africa or Latin America or the Indian subcontinent, uh, or people working maybe as cleaners in offices or whatever, those people send a lot of money back to their home countries, and that money is extremely important for those countries uh, to keep their economies going. But because in many cases, those people are not earning their remittances in the West, it means that the poorer countries will suffer. So again, according to a World Bank study, there'll be a 20% fall in remittances this year because of the uh, impact of the COVID pandemic. In sub-Saharan Africa, it's projected at 23%. Indian subcontinent, 22%. You know, we can, we can quibble about the exact numbers, but basically they'll, they'll take a very large hit from the uh, fall in remittances to their countries. Uh, and finally, tourism. I mean, people here probably on the whole don't think about Africa and Latin America and Asia so much as tourist destinations, although clearly you know, they are to some extent. But for them, for poor countries, even if they get a relatively small number of tourists, if they're very, very poor, those tourists make a very big difference to the economy. A country like Bangladesh, for example, which you don't think of as a you know, huge tourist destination, uh, and maybe, maybe a lot of the tourists going to Bangladesh are in fact people coming from uh, migrants from Bangladesh, I don't know, but if you're a very poor country and you have tourists coming from the West and spending money, that is very, very important to your economy. And that is another hit. So we've got 
slumping demand, commodity exports falling, remittances falling, tourism falling, lots of economic hits to the West because of the slumping demand from the West. Finally, because uh, I know I'm running out of time, so I'll go over it quickly, uh, deteriorating financial conditions, which maybe is the hardest to understand, but it's really not that complicated, at least in principle. So because the financial markets have got very nervous, huge amounts of money have come out of the poorer countries from their financial markets and have gone back to the West, the relative safety of the West. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of, uh, of dollars, uh, record levels. So that is causing them real problems. That in turn makes their currencies weaker. So if they want to buy goods from the West, it makes them more expensive. Uh, it means they have to pay more if they need to borrow money. So a lot of countries are, going, are already, in fact, becoming into huge problems in terms of repaying their debt. So again, it's not a tangible thing like you know, buying cut flowers or something like that, but it actually has a very, very big impact. It makes their goods more expensive. It means that they, get, they have to default on their debt or they're threatened with debt default. So these financial conditions are very important to look at. And often, in fact, it's the ones at the upper end of the scale which are already having debt problems, like Turkey, South Africa, Argentina, which were already teetering on the brink and which could have very serious debt problems, partly because of the COVID pandemic. So just to conclude, I think in terms of what we can do in the West in relation to this, uh, I think most people here are from the West uh, who've dialed in, although hopefully there are other people from the poorer countries too, First of all, I think we need to remake the case for economic growth. Because there are more and more people saying and repeating their arguments that economic growth is not that important, prosperity is not that important, there are other things in life. And of course, yes, it is true, there are other things in life. But the fact that they're not just not growing, but these uh, economies are shrinking, is going to have a huge effect on the people living in these countries, on the way that they run their lives. It's really going to be hugely damaging. And finally, I think there's another reason now to end the shutdown in the West, or at least to cut it back very sharply, because it seems clearer and clearer to me that the, the shutdown, at least the shutdown for most people, for the whole of the, for the large bulk of the population in the Western economies, is having a huge effect in the West itself, but even more of an effect for the poorer countries of the world. It's going to be hugely damaging. So I think we need to end it, end it now. And I'll in my introduction there. Great, thank you very much Daniel, that was a, a very good survey, a very large survey of what's going on and some very very important themes uh, brought out. So at this stage if, if you'd like to uh, ask a question or make a comment, it was a pretty sort of depressing survey um, of, of the situation in these countries and uh, I don't know to what extent we can discuss uh, the details of that and the way we can get out of it but it's certainly in terms of informing what we should do in the west as daniel said at the end i mean it's uh, really bringing our attention to what's happening in these countries would be very useful so i'm going to bring the first speaker in and that's para so para what's your point it's a question about leadership really because what i found quite striking uh, when you read about all these countries is how it appears anyway uh, Cop Blanc, everybody has followed the Western um, uh, lockdown method, if you like. 
everywhere there's been some lockdown restrictions of movement. And given what you've just said, uh, if you take social distancing, for instance, uh, in India, you've got slums where 800,000 people are living in one square mile of housing. Uh, in Africa, the, all the points you were talking about, you know, how resources are being shifted onto COVID as opposed to looking at malaria, keeping on looking at malaria, TB, childbirth, all these things. Uh, so my question really is, in your uh, readings, have you come across any country when, you know, and the countries know their local situations, uh, and Modi certainly knows, uh, and yet, um, uh, you know, lockdown happened very quickly, nobody was given any option to think it through, the government didn't think it through. So has there been any instances where somebody has stood up in a country and done something which is a bit more, uh, uh, you know, giving a lead and thinking about what is, um, necessary within the given uh, circumstances as opposed to just following the West. Okay, great. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Noah Keat. Brilliant. Hello, good evening. Uh, thank you, Daniel, for your opening contributions. Um, I wanted to ask about the Western attitude towards the developing world as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, and specifically um, the attitudes in the West and the UK towards the Department for International Development, um, because I know there have been some talk of perhaps moving, reducing the role of the uh, DFID and moving it into the Foreign Office. So I wonder whether you thought, um, as a result of the many problems now facing the developing world, either the UK will want to provide and the Western world will want to provide more assistance and financial support to um, the developing areas or will the problems that are clearly in Western countries like the UK and US actually make um, the DFID less relevant and less uh, important as a priority so we either become sort of more compassionate and helpful or less. Thank you very much. Brilliant, great question Noah. Martin Earnshaw. Oh, hi. Yeah, I, I was going to kind of ask, um, well, I was going to ask the same question as power, really, but to, to add to that on the uh, why, why, why isn't there any pushback to a lockdown in the developing world, given the economic damage? I'm just wondering um, what's driving every country to, to do it. Is that because they've been told by the World Health Organization? Is it because they want to um, save the, the, the middle classes of that country because they can get it to us which we don't really care about because it only affects the, the, the poor. So that's that one. And the other one is in terms of, of the left, um, you know, as we invited uh, George Monbiot today about um, less fuel and so on, and also Navarro Media really supporting the lockdown and slowing down the economy. It's almost as if large sections of the left don't really care about what's going on in the developing world, but, but, but they must know uh, about the impact or they would claim to care about it. So what's behind that? Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Sabina Bepler. Yes, I, I saw a report about um African markets and police, I don't remember which country it was, I think it was probably Nigeria going in really hard as police also did in other countries like in India. And so my question is, is there any information on, you know, whether this is, what is, what is this going to do to politics in these countries? Because they're actually 
quite weak states, um, governments which don't ha stand in high consideration. And I'm wondering if it's going to, um, you know, shake up some of these countries because people were pretty furious at being driven away from their market stores. And people were saying, well, COVID-19 is clearly the illness of the rich. That's what the people were saying. And, you, you know, you could see people being beaten and whipped by uh, Indian policemen. So I was wondering what effect would that, is that going to have in the long run? Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Russell Grinka. Somebody asked a question about leadership. I mean, I, I, you shouldn't assume that what looks like leadership in the West and a sort of obsession with lockdown, etc., is quite the same thing in, in a country like South Africa or in, in, in other African countries. I mean, just, just the, the South African example, the regime has taken the opportunity to really clamped down pretty hard. I mean, people may have noticed we've had a mobilization of the army uh, recently uh, where we had, uh, the army was being used with the police to enforce lockdown. And we moved from about 3,000 troops on the streets assisting the police to 73,000 overnight. Um, and essentially uh, the, the kind of, imminent instability in the country due to the really bad economic situation um, has uh, allowed the, the, the government to, to use lockdown as an excuse to really almost uh, impose an informal state of emergency, um, which is pretty unpleasant. Now, we've now got five stages of, of progressive reduction of lockdown um, which it's very difficult to distinguish between these stages, really. Um, they all mean economic uh, paralysis, really, uh, to, to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, it's it's a, pr a pretty grim situation. But the, e the economic crisis was also already pretty terrible. The, the, the junk status of the South African economy, which is now a de facto thing, was about to happen. So it's almost as if the two things coincided and the government is, has, has really clamped down uh, out, of, out of fear, I think, of, of disorder. People were saying, are people not resisting the lockdown? Well, there is no actual lockdown in a lot of places. It's impossible to have a lockdown. There has been quite a lot of resistance. There's been looting, there's been... Uh, uh, open disobedience in a number of areas of, of, of what's supposed to be a lockdown. So we've got a, a coincidence of coronavirus and, uh, and uh, intense economic crisis, which is not, a, not really a very pretty picture. Um, and leadership means pretense at, uh, at a, a sort of welfare um, solution to things coinciding with intensified political oppression. Thank you very much, Russell. That's a very useful insight from, from South Africa. Um, I'm going to just bring in Alistair Donald, my co-host, just now, and then I'll give Daniel a chance to respond to, because there's been a lot on the table already. Then I'll come out. I can see there are other hands that are for people that want to speak as, um, as well. So, um, so Alistair. Thanks, Daniel. I thought that was really interesting and very useful. Um, my question's on the point that you finished on, which was the degrowth uh, situation. I was reading uh, a, an article this morning about Mumbai and how they're going to 
uh, manage uh, getting public transport up and running again. Mumbai is, a, is famous for its suburban trains where uh, carriages uh, built to hold 50 people have 350 people on them at rush hour. And it was, it was basically saying that there'd be such a radical cutback of train services that uh, the hourly capacity of the system would go from 720,000 people in an hour uh, right down to uh, under 70,000. So it's running a really at 10% capacity. And rather than the, the, the authorities kind of really working out what they could do to, to get the train system up and running, the, the idea that they have seems to be to uh, get everybody to cycle uh, everywhere, which just seems a, a you know a preposterously hopeless solution. But I was, yeah, I've always thought of the the degrowth idea and 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 uh, the the arguments for it as being a bit of a Western disease. But actually, you could see that it was coming through from some people in India and Mumbai. And I just wonder to what extent you think that some of those ideas will gain a grip in the developing world as as much as the West. Uh, actually, because it fits in quite nicely here, I'm just going to uh, on the chat. There's a question. From Vanessa, which is while the West isn't remaking the West isn't remaking the case for economic growth, China is making that case. So won't the West lose influence in the world? After all, the West has always been ambivalent about industrialising developing countries, but in the context of the Cold War, then those arguments had to be promoted to profile the US Development and Security Advisor Rostow's stages of economic growth subtly subtitled significantly an anti-communist manifesto. But anyway, that that does China book that trend and does that mean that China's going to be more influential? Um, thanks for that, Vanessa. Daniel? Okay, well, I'm going to leave yeah. questions for the time being about the West and degrowth and just focus on the ones about the developing world itself. I mean, I very much agreed with Russell from South Africa that even if you think that, in principle, a lockdown is a good strategy, uh, and I'm not, I kind of don't claim to be a medical person or any, any expert like that, it, it just... It just can't be done. It can't, can't be done. It can't work in the poorer countries. Because as I argued in my introduction, they can't wash their hands. They don't have the facilities to wash their hands with soap and water all the time. They can't socially distance in many cases. It's just, just not feasible. It just doesn't work. So all you have, end up having is a huge amount of oppression, just forcing people to stay at home. Why countries have gone along with that, we can discuss, but that's a whole new topic. I've already talked about the economics of 140 or so countries. So to start talking about the politics is a different matter, but a couple of observations. Para asked, has everyone gone along with this? And I think the answer to that is almost everyone. I mean, the most famous dissident is Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who keeps on taking the piss out of the uh, lockdown strategy. But the local authorities in Brazil, you know, places like Sao Paulo and Rio and so on, they have imposed lockdown. So there's a conflict between Bolsonaro and the local authorities. And I think, I think if, I, if I remember correctly, countries like Nicaragua and Belarusia, I'm never sure how you pronounce that one, but, but basically everyone has gone, gone along with it apart from Brazil and a couple of other tiny countries. Finally, on the question about it being a disease of the rich, I think that is quite an interesting one because I've seen in Nigeria, for example, a BBC report saying that some people have been almost celebrating COVID-19 because they've said it's a disease of the rich because senior, some senior politicians have got COVID-19. And I think there's a grain of truth in that. Well, I certainly wouldn't go along with it, but the grain of truth is that because the rich elites are the ones who travel and go to Europe and so on, 
they're the ones who caught the disease first, and they're the ones who bring it into the country. But I'm pretty sure that over time it will spread across the population and it will be the poorer people who suffer from the disease. Uh, I think that's important to bear in mind, that even if it does appear to be a disease, the disease of the rich to begin with. And in, just finally, in terms of the politics, I mean, there are already pre-existing problems, pre-existing political problems and conflicts in a lot of these countries. COVID doesn't create the problems, but I think it does intensify them. So for example, you would have seen in the last day or two, there's been big protests in Lebanon. And I'm not sure to what extent COVID has become a big thing in Lebanon, but certainly the Lebanese currency has weakened considerably and that has affected people's living standards. And that, it seems to me, is at least an indirect effect of the COVID trend that I've talked about in terms of tightening financial conditions. So I, what, what I think it will do is intensify pre-existing conflicts. It won't cause the conflicts, but it will make them even more intense and more traumatic than they were before. Okay, great. Thank you, Thank you very much. Right, uh, next up is James Woodhausen. I very much uh, congratulate Daniel for his introduction. I missed the first few minutes while I've caught up. Um, I think the question of rising Chinese influence, firstly, is very important. Um, China's pissed off a lot of its neighbours with its manoeuvres. So what Vanessa asks about whether they will implicitly fill the gap uh, that America used to play many years ago is not a predetermined question, it seems to me. Obviously, they've got a lot of clout, but they're also taking a lot of flack about COVID. Uh, and no doubt they're travellers as well. So uh, I think the jury's still out on just how much Chinese influence uh, will grow in uh, developing countries. In Africa, it's true, they've caught a cold because of their treatment of blacks in China. And that's been you know, widely circulated in the African press and they've lost a lot of kudos uh, out of that. So I, I, you know, I don't know whether Daniel would like to come back on that. Second of all, um, still in the in the developing world, I think in the I mean I think Daniel's alerted us to just how complacent the Monbios and everybody else are in having <laughs> a purely British nationalist or EU nationalist or Western nationalist view of you know the need for a lockdown without even thinking about the developing world dependencies. I urge everybody to put a microscope to the United Nations, to the NGOs, to Bill Gates and the Melinda Foundation, because they have already played, and I've written about this, an absolutely perfidious role, uh, the East and the South. And now they probably see their moment, although they're a bit broke, the charities and so on. Alistair rightly made the point that, you know, the degrowth thing, I'm still staying in the East and South, don't worry, is more, was more popular among Westerners or Western intellectuals um, than in Easterners, and that's changed. I just thought I'd show this little Nesta pamphlet, 2012, Our Frugal Future, and the Hindi is Jugad. And you can be sure that not just Nesta here, but the Indian middle classes and the intellectual elite there and the professions, they're the only people who like Jugad, and that's because you know they can get published in the West about it. But they're going to be going after that under the influence of the NGOs um, more than ever. No doubt of that in my mind. 
And if we think about what Oxfam did to Haiti, you know, in terms of disease, in terms of child abuse and everything like that, uh, it's not going to be pretty. Just finally, um, I think the, uh, you know, it will allow not only the ruling class and middle classes to impose their sort of Malthusian frugality on people, turn a, a necessity into a virtue, if you like. Um, it will allow them to repress minorities more and migrants more, as has happened in India. Uh, and, I, you know, I think there's going to be some very fierce class struggles there, no doubt about it. One country particularly to look at, I'm just looking at it, is the one with the um, third largest population in the world, about which we know nothing broadly, Indonesia. They just declared a lockdown this week. So we think we're behind insofar as it's a good thing. Uh, they're really behind. And, you know, it's full of islands, as we know. It's pretty impoverished, quite a repressive record, both indigenously and especially towards minorities in different regions. So that might be worth a look. Uh, I've, I've just seen a report um, reporting 5% growth GDP for Indonesia this year. Recent, just in Google News, it's for the birds. And it's time we started learning about that country. Great. Okay. Thanks very much. If you'd like to hear um, James expand on those comments on China and um, much more, he'll be uh, one of the speakers next week, this time next week, uh, for our session looking specifically at China. So thanks for that, James. Phil? Two points for me. Uh, first one is, um, well, pull us on from what James is saying. I think uh, I'm providing a bit of a link between last week's discussion on what was going on in, in the West to the China discussion next week, and it, it pertains then to Daniel's uh, excellently presented uh, third and fourth point of his of his introduction, which is you know the the impact of the slowdown in the West. He explained is clearly having huge repercussions and will have huge repercussions. From last week, we can see well there may be nothing that we can uh, do about that at the moment. The direction of uh, a development within the West at the moment, and not just Britain, but, but other countries, is that it could be uh, the uh, consolidation of the trends towards uh, depression uh, may be one of the features uh, that come out, as, as we argued last week. You know, it's not inevitable, but certainly the way we're seeing government shaping up in most countries, that's certainly possible. In which case, Daniel's third point about, uh, you know, the, that impact is something which, unfortunately, countries in Africa and, and other low-income countries are going to have very little uh, uh, capacity to do much about. They will be operating in a, in, in a world economy in which uh, the West is at the minimum um, in, in, in a protracted, low growth, uh, heavily indebted uh, uh, era. Uh, and that respect, while some of the, um, uh, the short term impacts that Daniel described, for example, say remittances, uh, you know, I imagine there will be more workers going from uh, you know, the very poorest countries to the middle income countries again. I imagine that will happen. But some of the features that he said, which are so damaging today from outside their own region, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe remaining, which then links to uh, uh, the, the, the influence of China, what, what James just talked about. Because one of the things that's striking is that when we look at things in the West and looking at um, Daniel's fourth point, sort of the, the capital outflows and the, the financial flows factor, we tend to think of that mostly in terms of uh, the West 
exporting capital and then pulling capital back and portfolio flows being repatriated and so on. But we should remember that a lot of capital is now no longer just from the, uh, the west to the south, it's also from the east to the south, it's, it's from China into, the, in, into those countries. And if we uh, anticipate that China will have more capacity to uh, recover than the old west has, then that means that uh, those countries, it's not just a political thing, but countries in Africa will be looking more towards uh, China as, uh, 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 as a sort of, a not, not so much replacing, but continuing the effort that's already doing in Africa. I mean, China is the biggest creditor country in, in, in Africa. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of foreign direct investment, but it's a tremendous amount of loans, which as we know have been financing, you know, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of infrastructure projects there. So we can see that that uh, uh, could be uh, not just a, um, uh, uh, you know, the, it's not just gonna be the, the, the political aspects of how this uh, whole pandemic sorts itself out between the West and the East, but also in terms of the material uh, possibilities that China will have. Second point, more quickly, um, uh, on this question of uh, the, the, the lockdown side in, 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 the, in uh, the rest of the world and why there has been, you know, Paris question at the beginning and Martin's question, why there has been such a commonality in terms of um, the, way, the way countries have responded. I do think this is something which there should be a bit of a reckoning with. Uh, in respect to the, uh, uh, Martin answered the question some in, in himself, the, the World Health Organization, because I think these globalist uh, bodies, um, uh, it's not just the NGOs, it's these, it's these official globalist organizations which have put out a common message. Uh, and it's not just a message uh, developed in, in Washington and, and London and, and uh, Berlin and Paris, it's also the message in Beijing as well, um, uh, which is a sort of a one size fits all th uh, scenario. Because you read the press releases, you read their uh, the, the World Health Organization's um, statements and stuff. They present the whole world as being afflicted by this uh, by this pandemic, and everyone needs to respond in pretty much the same way. So they've got a lot of responsibility for this. And I, I think just to, to indicate why that's the wrong approach, uh, just to illustrate, if you look at the map of the world um, uh, in terms of the impact of deaths from from COVID, it is strikingly um, uh, uh, strikingly uh, uh, diverse. Um, I mean, if you look at the deaths per million, and, and I know Daniel made the point that this, the, the jury's still out on what the impact of the of the of, of COVID is in the less uh, developed countries. But if you look at a map of the world in the low-income countries, the average, say, take Africa as a block as a whole, there is one death per million at the moment. In America. The, uh, the number is 176 deaths per million. So it's, it's less than 1% at the moment. I clearly think may take off and so on. But in terms, of, uh, in terms of Britain, I think the figure is 319 today deaths per million. In uh, Spain, it's about 500 deaths per million. So say Africa, one death per million. So it's, it's less than 0.2% the number of deaths than they are. And yet they're being expected by the World Health Organization to apply exactly the same um, uh, measures uh, that, that, that seems to be so relevant to the West. And I think it's that sort of uh, one-size-fits-all globalist influence is something that uh, I say we should be, there should be a reckoning about afterwards. Right, great. Thanks very much, Phil. I'm going to bring in Joan next and then uh, Russell. So. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to follow up on some points about China. 
I think uh, this whole issue now of what's going to happen in terms of financing, debt, emerging market debt crises, um, debt restructuring and so on, really brings out into the open. This is something, you know, obviously we discussed before about how this pandemic is really bringing to the surface and highlighting trends, actually including many trends that people weren't aware of in, and in relation to China to what degree China has already, you know, established very important um, geopolitical spheres of influence in many emerging market regions, obviously Africa, but also Latin America, also parts of Eastern Europe as well. And um, I just think what will happen now, is, so let's just take Africa for instance. I mean, China is the single largest lender to low income countries and emerging markets in general, by far um, now. So many emerging markets, including uh, those in Africa, have developed a very high financial exposure to China through credit facilities, loan arrangements, often linked to commercial projects and so on, secured at market rates and backed by collateral. I mean, one estimate from last year is that developing and emerging market countries owed about 380 billion US dollars to China at the end of 2017. And that's three years ago, and it's increased quite a lot since since then. And I would say the amounts outstanding and the exposure to China has undoubtedly increased substantially, um, given financing pledges made by China, including the 60 billion in loans to Africa announced by the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation in 2018. Uh, so Africa has a particularly high exposure to Chinese debt through lines of credit made available to public uh, and to a much lesser extent, private borrowers. And obviously the whole Belt and Road project is, um, you know, is, is, is a very big deal. Now, China has joined in with the G20, you know, measures to support emerging markets. Later on, it will be interesting to see what China will do, because it would, uh, they would need China to be involved if they're going to put together any kind of debt restructuring uh, packages. Uh, they would need the full engagement of China, given it's the largest lender. Now, in general, China is very, very hard-nosed about getting its money back. Um, and you will know that um, in, in most Belt and Road projects, countries <laughs> have basically committed to handing over key facilities, ports and so on, in the event that they default on their payments. So, you know, what will China do now? in Africa um, and, and other emerging market uh, regions and countries where, where, which are going to be struggling uh, to meet their um, uh, debt repayments. Will it actually engage in kind of generous um, debt relief um, and debt restructuring uh, packages or will it, you know, take a, a more hard-nosed approach um, uh, to increase its influence in the regions? I think that's something uh, just to to watch really in the in the coming years because there's no doubt about it we we are heading for you know very big debt crises in in many parts of the emerging market world. Good points in themselves and beautifully setting up next week's discussion. Thank you for that plug. <laughs> Effectively, uh, Russell, I'll bring Russell now and then I'll come back to Daniel to try and sort of uh, sum up uh, what's been going on. So yes, uh, Russell. Phil made the point about we've relatively few deaths in, in, in Africa, for example, but we're following the same old WHO model. 
I mean, ob- obviously, there's quite a big time lag. Nobody really knows what's going to happen in, in terms of uh, of uh, the extent of of the of the the uh, the virus. But uh, we've already seen fairly different patterns. And somebody made the point. I think Daniel made the point about immunocompromised people. And if you look at the bulges in the in the graphs of who's who's dying, for example, it's much younger people. I mean, the figures are still early, but much younger cohorts of people seem to be dying in South Africa than I think it was comparing with Italy. Uh, the, I saw these, these two graphs. So we are going to see some quite different um, consequences, I, I think. Just on also on, on emulating the West, the South African government uh, has has put together a big package led by the National Treasury, which is obviously quite strongly influenced by the IMF and the World Bank, to um, pump a lot of emergency funds into the economy. It really accentuates the kind of dual economy that we've got in this country, where about I think it's about 500 billion rand is, is what they're talking about in this package. We're not quite sure where that's going to come from. They seem to be enthusiastic about the IMF and the World Bank, which is driving the South African left, such as it is absolutely crazy. But um, why? I don't know. I'd rather get it from China. I don't know where we rather uh, get it from uh, indigenous sources as well, potentially. But only about 10% is really going to, to welfare programs to offset the impact of, of lockdown, which is pretty bad, really. People are now starting to starve. Um, you know, end of this month, all those, um, the last salary package uh, comes to an end and people have nothing in, 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 in the ghettos. And um, the government has been pretty hard-nosed about it, you know, less than 10%, probably, already starting to cut down on what they were even promising in the first place. For example, an extension of child support grant, um, which is, was a quick and easy way of getting some money to, to the, the masses of, of really poor people. They've, they've now gone back on what they promised in the first place, even on a piffling amount of 350 rand, which I don't know what 350 rand is in pounds, but it's it's peanuts, basically. Um, So the sort of uh, the the dual economy kind of patterns of South Africa are only going to be um, reinforced by this. And the only solution that um, the majority of ordinary people have got is some kind of self-reliance solution. So you're seeing a lot of localized projects to organize feeding schemes, soup kitchens. I mean, it's as crude and basic as that. And, but there's nothing better than this, quite frankly. And the left's um, obsession with degrowth, it's in South Africa as well, yeah. is a real joke in this one. I mean, they don't like to hear it uh, when, you, when you challenge them on this. You say, you've got your degrowth now. Are you liking yeah. it? Um, okay. Thanks. Thanks, Russell. A quickie from Dennis, and then I'll come back to, um, to Daniel. Wonderful discussion and uh, introduction. Um, I just a very small point. I was reading a very good article about Meltblown, which people might not know what that is, but it's the material that's used to produce face masks. And China, it seems, is the only country in the world that has any capacity to produce it in quantity. The, the article was making the point that if the pandemic spreads in Africa, the only country that's capable of supplying them with anything of the PPE requirements will be China. 
and that it will be used as a kind of, you know, it's like um, James Woodhausen, I think, was saying that, you know, Africans in China were being treated badly. Well, it's China able to kind of get some sort of kudos from people across the world who may need this desperately. Brilliant. Uh, I just, yeah, I just wanted to chip in with a quick point as well, because about this, about self-reliance, both national and individual, but particularly national. I mean, I remember after the, some discussion after the Asian financial crisis 20 years ago, that this idea that you could rely on the West or whatever, um, or rich countries to do things was uh, kind of, Re- you know, some some up and coming countries realised that actually you couldn't do that, and they actually had to be much more self reliant, and um, probably financially will will ride this one out better than they might have done in the past. So I wonder what impact this is this is going to have. Will that accentuate those kind of trends as well? Right, enough from me, uh, Daniel. Uh, yeah, just very quickly, I can't cover all the points. I mean, in terms of uh, what we in the West can do, in addition to what I said about ending the shutdown and fighting growth scepticism, I think probably debt forgiveness will become more and more important. So to argue that if these poorer countries do have debts uh, to the richer world, we should argue they should, you know, they should be forgiven because of the, the circumstances they're in which are generally speaking not problems of their own creation. They're to a very large extent problems we've created in the West through our policy actions, I would argue. Finally, I would argue very, very strongly it's wrong to frame the discussion or wrong to frame what I would see as our main opponents as advocates of degrowth. The people who advocate degrowth are people who very explicitly say growth is a bad thing. And it's a very small minority of people who call themselves supporters of growth, degrowth. It's a very small number of people who say growth is a bad thing. To me, much, much more mendacious is what I call growth scepticism. In other words, it's these people who say, well, of course we think growth is important. Of course, you know, we have to pay some attention to material prosperity, but it has to be limited. It has to be made sustainable. We have to care about the environment. We have to care about inequality. We have to care about happiness. And really, it's a way of delegitimizing prosperity. It's a way of kind of trying to undermine uh, the importance of economic growth without attacking it directly, attacking it indirectly. And I think the strength of degrowth in the West explains, uh, sorry, the strength of growth skepticism in the West helps to explain why we haven't really taken on board the huge economic problems that the developing world is facing because we don't think economic growth is that important. And there is a trend very much influenced by the West. There is a strong growth skeptic trend in the developing world as well. You know, people like Amartya Sen, who won a Nobel Prize for Economics, an Indian or Bangladeshi origin economist, very much a prominent advocate of growth skepticism. So for me, it's absolutely central that as part of this discussion, we reassert the importance of economic growth, and that is not just against a tiny minority who say degrowth, no growth, but against much more mainstream green thinking and growth skepticism. They're the, the real enemy I think we need to deal with. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Daniel. That's been a really interesting discussion. We're going to move on now and talk about Germany. And uh, to introduce that discussion, we have Sabina Bepleschwal. So, Sabina, over to you. Okay, well, it seems like reporting from a different universe after what we've just heard. Anyway, um, one of the richest countries in the world. Germany's been in lockdown. 
lockdown since mid-March and um, there, it's quite unclear as to how things will continue. But one thing is quite sure, people, uh, most economists agree that um, Germany will definitely be sliding into a deep recession this year. The uh, German, the Deutsche Bank, expects the economy to contract by about 5%. Other economic institutes are talking of up to 14.6% in the second quarter of next year. There's also a lot of talk about um, a wave of insolvencies. But it's important to say, and that maybe makes the distinction to what we've just heard, that um, these insolvencies haven't yet happened. So the German state has been... Um, counteracting this with a massive um, rescue package, a massive rescue fund. There's been, uh, we've we said last week in last week's discussion that this is the time of the state. That's indeed the case in Germany, even though I would argue it's in some ways also the time of the weak state. I, I'll, I'll get to that later. But just to give you an idea of what's happening. So we've had uh, state bailouts. There's talks of the state bailing out Lufthansa. It's already given money to Condor, so the airline companies. 50 billion at least have been set aside to support small um, and medium-sized companies in terms of them receiving quick and unbureaucratic transfer payments. There's been, the German government has promised an unlimited, as it said, credit relief program for bigger companies. I think the total sum set aside for that is around 500 billion to date. 470,000 companies have been, giving, have been given short time work support, meaning their um, employees will be getting um, their wages paid at least in part, 67% um, by the German state. Um, that's already now, there's 2 million uh, workers who are benefiting from this. That's already more than after the 2009 financial crisis, which is when 1.4 million people, uh, workers got that uh, same type of short um, time work um, support. And despite all of this, um, yet despite all of this, people do say, everybody says it's, it's not going to be enough if the lockdown doesn't end or if the economy doesn't pick up again um, soon, if the lockdown doesn't end um, by summer. So last week, I, just to give you an example, I read that the Association of Hotels and Restaurants um, said that 70,000 of their member companies um, explained that they would be closing by the end of the year if they couldn't open up again um, in summer to, to get some of the, the summer business. Um, what I'd like to um, sort of emphasize uh, or, 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 or point towards are some of the items which I think some of the aspects which I think have, haven't been discussed enough in this whole um, lockdown debate. And the first um, problem which I think has received too little attention is the question of how much of the current problems we are seeing in Germany are actually due to the lockdown and how much of these problems are due to difficulties the German economy has been having for quite a while. So sort of linking it a bit to the discussion we had last week um, and the points made by Phil, because I think that's very, very true for Germany too. So we know, for example, that the German economy has been in a bad state for a while or not a, uh, not a bad state, but at least not as good a state as many people think. There's be, there was talks of a recession all of last year. Last year was a year uh, uh, with a particularly low uh, GDP growth. It ended with a growth of only 0.6%, which is the lowest uh, in, in many years. Lower, uh, 2013 was lower, but it's, it, was, it was quite bad. Germany has been struggling with low productivity growth rates now for 
for several years, running for at least 10 years, the last seven years, the productivity growth rate on average was 0.8%, which is obviously also quite bad for a strong economy, worse than many other countries in Europe. We've had the, uh, the number of uh, startups have halved. So in 2013, Germany still had 900,000 startups. Uh, in the last years, it was only about 500,000 or 400,000 in 2019. Um, so uh, all of that shows that, you know, e even though we've had what was called a, a job miracle in the German economy, many of these jobs which were created after 2009 were actually low productivity jobs in the service industry. So there's been a very low innovation, very bad uh, low innovation rates in Germany. All these things, all these are problems which have been long-standing problems. Maybe the worst indicator or the, the, the biggest worry also for the German government is the decline in the manufacturing sector. So the manufacturing sector, which has always been the backbone of German industry, the German government sees that problem. It started a, um, a program which it called Industry 2030, because just to give you the number, since 2016, the share of industry in the country's value added has fallen from 23% to 21.5%. Uh, and uh, in December, there were articles in the newspaper talking of a creeping deindustrialization in Germany. So all of this um, is true, has been true for quite a while. In, in December, um, there were talks of industry having to reduce their staff. So there were predictions long before we had the corona crisis that um, unemployment was going to rise um, in any case. Now we're saying that um, because, to, you know, with corona, the situation has worsened. There are now predictions that the number of em the employee employed people in the economy is going to decrease by at least one million. So the question is, what is new? What isn't new? What is due to the lockdown? And what is actually a much deeper problem? Could it be that the uh, problems with now are only sort of a, a bit of a distraction from what we should be talking in Germany? The second question, I, I think, which hasn't received enough attention, and you know, it's actually surprisingly little, little attention when you look at the debates in this country, um, is the, the question as to who is going to bear the, the brunt of, of what's happening, who is going to have to pay, you know, in the end for, for, the, for the, um, the contraction within the German economy. So we've got this pretty much, uh, it's a bit different to Britain, but I think we also have this debate of we're all in it together. So last week I heard um, one of the lead economies of one of the big German banks saying at the end of the year, we're all going to be poorer. Um, and I think that's, of course, nonsense because, you know, we know that we're not all going to be equally poorer at the end of the year. Or not everybody's going to be poorer. So the question is, who is actually going to be poorer? It's, it's surprising nobody's really raised that, that, that issue. It's, it's surprising to me. So, um, you know, the one million people who are going to potentially lose their jobs are not going to come from all sectors of society, but probably from the you know, the low productivity service sectors in the hotel and restaurant business. We shouldn't forget that Germany also has over 7.6 million people who are employed in what the Germans call mini jobs, which are um, low um, salary jobs. They have no unemployment benefit whatsoever. And these people are also not liable to any of the short time work benefits. So the only thing 
these people that what's going to happen to them if they lose their jobs so that they're going to have to fall back on social security um, we also always have this image of one germany you know it is of course clearly one nation but germany has very very deep cleavages which have i think in the last years become stronger so Last year, there was an interesting study about the differences of incomes, even according to the different regions. So the rich areas in Germany, which are more in the south, the productive south, which is where the car industry, um, Daimler is located, you have um, very wealthy um, regions where the sort of average, um, uh, um, uh, what is it called? Um, Disposal income, yes, I was looking for that word. The disposal income per year is uh, over 30, 36,000 euros, so quite high. But then if you look at the regions or the areas in the former east or also in the former uh, industrial west, the yearly disposable income is uh, less than 16,000, so it's almost half. So there's huge differences in income. Um, and the question is, uh, you know, what's going to happen? Now, I think... Mm, if I if I if I if I want to say something about the future, I, I don't think that um, with the current government and the the, the kind of uh, politics we have at the moment, that these problems will really be addressed. Um, we have a government. We've had the same government now pretty much. We haven't had the same government because we've had different coalitions, but we've had a very stable um, chancellor. So we have um, a, a party politics, a, a government which has been very much clinging to the status quo, and it, which is very reluctant to, to address any of these problems. And I really don't, don't see this happening in the future either. So one of the things I would think would need to happen is that the government sort of rethink some of its old pet projects which have proven to be inefficient and could is are probably part of the the cause for all of these problems one of these pet projects is of course the turn to the alternative energy the move away from atomic energy which happened a couple of years ago but in many ways the government's pretty stuck with that um, it's it's very expensive it's very very inefficient it's cost the german pop, um, uh, taxpayer or just the normal population uh, millions because Germany has the highest energy costs of all of Europe which of course is spread across the entire population while the benefits those who have an interest in these um, type of politics are only relatively small groups the, the green elite people with solar panels on their roofs and their private homes and so on and so forth um, another pet project which the government is clinging to, and I think it's probably going to cling to more as the crisis deepens, is the kind of um, sort of growth skepticism Daniel mentioned, um, climate policy, environmental policy. Interestingly enough, the Chancellor just today or yesterday said that with all the corona discussion, we shouldn't forget that our main problem is actually, or one of our biggest problems is actually the climate change. Schäuble made a similar comment um, just last week. All that doesn't indicate that the government is going to go down a way of supporting innovations, shaking things up, making the kind of changes we would need. And of course, the third pet project, a very important project of the German government, is the EU, the EU which we were talking about last week. And some people were saying that one of the positive sides of this crisis might be the potential co collapse of the EU. Now, I think uh, for that to happen, we would probably need a pretty 
big change in German politics because, as I said, the German government will stick and defend the status quo, and the EU is very much part of this. Um, the German government is so much uh, entrenched with EU policies that I, I can't really see this happening at this stage from this country. So, so far, thanks. Great, thank you. Get your hands up. I'll start with uh, Patrick, if I may. Yeah, on Germany, I think it's, it's quite interesting, the polarization you see uh, on Twitter and in the media. Um, there's a lot of people who actually make this point that Germany has a lot of structural issues and uh, there have been predictions of uh, unsustainability of um, uh, developing an industrial nation under this kind of zero interest policy and money printing policy that, that led to an accumulation of so-called zombie uh, firms, very much like Japan, who've been doing this for 30 years and thereby now have about 20% of, of, of firms are zombie firms and there's no uh, productivity growth in, in Japan actually have for 20 years now 1% annual per capita. Um, talking about degrowth, literally you have, uh, uh, you have reduction of productivity and per capita income in Japan, 20% in 20 years. And Germany has been going down this route. And, what, and there's also a time bomb building up, which is going to be getting worse now as they indiscriminately uh, uh, subsidize everybody. And there's no distinction anymore who is, who is deserving a subsidy and who's already a zombie. Uh, we have actually for curiously in ten years where uh, there was a it wasn't much 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 of a real boom growth was relatively low uh, and also in many other European countries zero and Germany was still going on but the rate of company failure has been going down dramatically usually you have as an average about two percent uh, let's say creative uh, destruction, which you need to have to, to, to have unlocked these resources, failing companies, bankruptcies basically, need to be about 1.5 to 2% annually so that you actually have the resource and labor for, uh, force available to, to invest and, and employ in, in innovations. And that has, been, uh, has kind of collapsed, <laughs> fell down to 0.5% uh, over 10 years, year by year. So there's an accumulation of these firms and so it's first of all means paralysis, stagnation, but it's also on the balance sheets of banks, there has been the accumulation of firms who are basically no longer uh, earn their capital costs and they're kind of hanging in there um, and, and they're, they're kind of time bomb. In particular, the banks themselves have been uh, very, very shaky all across Europe, but also in Germany, but it's a Commerzbank, German bank, many banks, uh, it would go bust right away if, if this zero interest rate policy is going to any, in any way reverse. And some people predict actually going negative, going deeper and deeper negative. There might be even 3%, 5%, 7% negative. It's the only way to keep that going. But of course, it's not going to go on forever. And, and in a way, the, the, the corona crisis uh, has made, um, accelerated these issues and, and makes many things worse. I mean, in Europe, you can still, like the American Europeans, they can money pump for, for a bit while longer. Uh, in particular, around the world, you have trouble. Uh, all of these currencies can afford that. And of course, when you talk about South Africa, such country cannot. They, they have to actually get, bring it out of the real uh, uh, resources and can't just uh, it, uh, inflate and borrow. But I think there is a lot of this debate. And what is interesting for me is that the left is, of course, thrilled about these kind of quasi-nationalization. They're looking forward to the nationalization of banks. And on the more libertarian 
angle. They're also predicting the nationalization of banks, but they're talking about there's going to be a backlash because you have savers now literally being um, um, depleted for years. And if you go negative, they're also going to have put interest rates on cash. They're also going to, you know, going to put wealth tax on. So, so what, I'm, what, what is interesting is the sense of polarization and a real, in terms of the left seeing socialism on the agenda and others see, so, uh, see the fight okay. against socialism and the, and the bourgeois, literally a bourgeois revolution on the horizon because yeah. basically a kind of crisis uh, uh, leading to a major reset. That's the debate in Germany. I, I, I find quite exciting. Okay, right. Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> that was a lot in a short space of time. Um, uh, right. Now, I've got uh, James Russell Para, and I, Joan wants to come in as well. Noah asks on the chat, how will the coronavirus pandemic affect Merkel's chances of, uh, or the chances of Merkel's successor as CDU remaining chancellor after 2021? That's an interesting point. Uh, so uh, anyway, so James and then Russell. Uh, well, thank you, Sabina. That was really great, uh, as ever. I'm sure you know that it, just as a footnote, in the UK, Germany is loved to bits by our lockdown uh, friends because you've got a diagnostics medical industry like we don't have here. Is that true? Or have you followed that at all? Because, you know, until the second peak discussion, which began today, I believe, or yesterday, you know, Germany was um, the personification of everything that was good in the EU with Britain, as usual, being uh, denigrated by people who've been nationalists all their life until about the Brexit moment. Secondly, uh, to do with that, I was interested in your view that obviously the Merkel government, the whole establishment, has got a whole lot invested in the EU. At the same time, in the British press, much is made of the you know unwillingness of the German elite to part with money to club men, uh, France, Italy, Spain, uh, especially Italy. So I wonder, you know, they're obviously caught between a rock and a hard place, you know, they're, they're all these pressures to, to be nasty to the meds. On the other hand, they're big invested in the EU. So Germany paying, playing a pivotal role, the pivotal role in the EU, uh, seems to me, you know, something to, to re-inspect a bit. Uh, thirdly, just as a, a little footnote, I think your thing about are we all in it together is uh, very good. Just to tell colleagues, I went foolishly went to a webinar, management webinar, and a brilliant American woman at the London Business School, Regents Park's other zoo, uh, said, you know, well, the great thing about this virus is it doesn't distinguish between classes. And of course, you know, medically, that may be true, right? But her willingness to medicalize out the class struggle and, you know, say it doesn't exist. Um, I wondered if you'd encountered that, you know, given the residue of Cold War American thinking, perhaps in, uh, in America, you know, in this sort of classless, pluralistic kind of legacy uh, that they've had. Um, a final question. Uh, the... You know, you mentioned energy vendor and the commitment, they're committed to that, they're committed to sustainability. I wondered whether you'd had the same discussion in Germany, especially in the Ruhr, 
about, you know, this crisis is great because it's lowered pollution. Uh, you know, that's a quite a big, everybody's going on, uh, even Andrew Marr was going on about the blue skies in Britain uh, recently. And so the smog, you know, is that, again, making a, a virtue out of necessity, Gambia? Okay. Okay. Thank you, James. Uh, Russell. Just a short point. I mean, Germany has a significant industrial presence around the world, not just in the EU. I mean, in the province where I live, we've got Mercedes-Benz, we've got VW, and we've got a whole supply chain of, of subsidiary manufacturers. And I'm just wondering to the extent that we, we're, we can expect a kind of unwinding of the global presence of German industry. Uh, for, for example, here they're dependent on a massive state um, uh, subsidy from the South African government, which may disappear. Um, and I, I'm wondering whether there are analogous uh, examples in other countries around the world where there's a German industrial presence, as, as there was in Australia, where they took away the auto subsidy, the auto industry disappeared overnight. So are we going to see a real retrenchment on the globalization of, of German industrial presence around the world uh, brought about by the coronavirus, but obviously by the underlying economic crisis that we're facing? Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, right, um, Para. Um, two quick uh, questions. Um, one interested to know, James brought it up, the, in short, are there more protectionist discussions within Germany in relation to the rest of Europe? And James gave quite a few examples. That's what we're reading from here. Um, the second question is much more about the mood of the nation, uh, because from here you have articles talking about shops are beginning to open, but then it, uh, it's sort of a line. There are other articles that say people are very wary of uh, going back to normality. So I'm quite interested in terms of, uh, you know, what is the discussion there across the nation? Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. I'm going to take Joan because I think you've got a few questions. Sabina and then Phil and then I think that's going to have to be it uh, I'm, I'm afraid so. Yeah my question is um, uh, in relation to this point which I would actually written down before Sabina even said it about Germany essentially being a kind of status quo economy and also politically also very much a conservative kind of status quo um, political class in place there and whether this you know, ironically, some of Germany's apparent strengths might turn out to be a weakness or a constraint over the over the long term. So, you know, if you look at Germany in the scheme of things, you know, Germany is by virtue of its starting position, you know, its structural strength, its strong manufacturing base. I mean, it's still, you know, real value added is 26 percent. Um, uh, uh, of the of GDP and um, you know, it's it, it's kept some of that going even during the lockdown. And, you know, you can see that by some kind of proxy indicators and so on, electricity consumption and so on. Um, and so if you look at what's going to happen in Germany at the trough of this um, uh, uh, recession in the second quarter, I mean, obviously, this is kind of a lot of it pure guesswork by now, but it's, it's say Germany looking at something like minus 6% against minus 18% in, in, in Italy. Um, and we know that Germany is going to be able to ramp up production again, you know, 
again, obviously there's constraints in terms of global demand, but it will be able to ramp up production. There's massive government intervention to preserve economic capacity, minimise in income loss, prevent a spike in unemployment and so on. So it's very well placed to, to you know, to, to recover maybe before others in the Eurozone. But maybe that's not the best thing in the long term because it's basically about preserving what exists already when a, this is a crisis that does provide an opportunity for governments to change course to you know encourage some creative destruction and accelerate the fourth industrial revolution and so on so that's one thing and what is the political upshot of all this sabina do you think that you know in terms of the election next year that um, this whole thing obviously merkel's had a good crisis so far do you think that's more likely to um favor the kind of more centrist candidates in the leadership election which of course has been postponed um rather than the kind of more right-wing candidate and if that were to be the case would that make more more likely a black green coalition you know and obviously the implications of that are you know for some of the things that you've you've mentioned you know climate change policy and so on are not particularly great um or do you see things differently? I mean, I would imagine that um, once the fallout, um, you know, once we see the fallout, which is going to be unevenly distributed regionally, as you said, in Germany, that in the Eastern Lender and, and, and you know, elsewhere, that there will be a boost, even though they've plummeted in the polls at the moment, a boost of the AFD. Okay, um, that's great. Uh, finally, uh, Phil. Uh, thanks very much, Sabina. That was um, a very, very helpful presentation. Um, one of the questions I think we should be uh, thinking about in, in all these economy forums is um, what has, what, what's different, what can we identify that's different from the responses in the 2008-2009 um, period? Because you've stressed, Sabina, and, and it's a theme which we can all recognize, the, the, the elements of continuity. Um, which are brought to the surface through through the uh, reactions to the pandemic. But to what extent have things moved on, or can we identify any areas where things moved on? I, I think two areas I'm thinking of. One, there's been a bit of a discussion about the deteriorating quality of the labour market in Germany, which you uh, mentioned in passing. Um, that is the greater proportion of sort of low-value, low-productivity jobs. Um, which even though unemployment is relatively low, would indicate that the new jobs which have been created over the last 10 years have been of a, of a much inferior quality. I mean, it's come out in the discussion of the, um, the wage subsidy saying that this time, while the wage subsidy is still seen as a, uh, as a bit of a model in, in advanced countries, um, it's not having the same impact because uh, if it's offered to a low-income person in the hospitality industry, leisure industry, and so on, 60 or 67% of a low wage isn't really enough to, uh, to survive on. So it's, it's not having that safety net effect that it had 10 years ago when it was offered to people who were on higher wages and therefore it gave them for a period, you know, a, a, a relatively decent income during the period of crisis. This time it seems to be uh, highlighting that there has been that deterioration of labor markets. That's, that's, that's one observation which would be interesting to see if you, if you concur with. And Finally, or second one on, on the, the sort of the political uh, reaction of people, um, because given that this pandemic is going to, as we discussed 
before our discussing in, in, other, in, in other discussions, or is aggravating the tensions within the EU. I mean, I've always been very sympathetic to the position of, of Germany that why should German working class people be expected to pay higher taxes imposed by the European Commission effectively to subsidize Southern Europe? You know, it seems to be a, a sound democratic argument for saying that, you know, we shouldn't be uh, squeezed um, by, uh, by Brussels. So I, I accept that. But I'm interested as to what extent the discussion on the grind um, has, has maybe moved on a bit. Uh, you know, what was the feeling about uh, the discussion about the failures of EU solidarity this time? Was there any sense that, um, you know, that, that, that the, 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 the failures of giving support to uh, Italy and China moving in there, was that something which was seen as uh, a matter of discussion within, within German society? Uh, or is it sort of pushed to one side? Uh, because at some stage, this is really going to come to the fore. Maybe initiated, as Dominic said last time, I can see him there, you know, through what's happening more internally in, in Italy. But the, uh, you know, the German people are going to have to respond to that at some point. Is that something which has moved on in the discussion? I know you say the political class is very much a status quo political class and very much tied up with the EU. But what's happening more uh, amongst amongst ordinary people in terms of their perceptions of what's different. Uh, thank you very much, Phil. Right, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, for uh, points and questions. I'll bring Sabina back in now. So your task is hopeless. There have been so many questions thrown at you. So just, just pick out what you think you can answer. Okay, well, I, I actually, maybe I'll pick on the last point because I think that's an interesting point. And I, I, I do think that, you know, I, I don't believe that we're going to see the collapse of the EU because, the, as I said, the German government is going to do what it can. But what may happen is that some of the contradictions are going to come out more clearly. So the, um, Paul Lever wrote an interesting book. He was a former um, British ambassador in Germany, always pointing to the fact that there is this massive difference between the rhetorics of the German government or the or German politicians and their actual handling of, of, of the EU. And and I think that's that's really going to come out um, stronger in the sense that um, it's going to become clearer and clearer that Germany is going to have to pursue its own interests in, or, and, and will pursue its own interests and won't be able to to actually always promise to do the pontificating of, you know, um, um, uh, keeping Europe together and, and showing solidarity with the poorer countries in Southern Europe. That's just not uh, not happening. And Germany's not going to be able to to, to uphold that 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 image for much longer, and I think people in Germany are going to slowly notice that. So you know, the Chancellor constantly talking about the importance of of a, of a common EU. People are questioning that. Whether she's going to her party, I think everything is still open. Um, I can't really, uh, you know, it's it's going to be really exciting what's happening in the next year because uh, a year is still quite long, and we're also going to have to see how the COVID nineteen um, uh, is developing. So if we're going to see the economy really crashing, I think the Chancellor and her and the, and the coalition is going to have quite a lot to answer for. There's already a, a number of people who are quite um, uh, impatient and, uh, and very, very worried of, of how this is developing. And people do realize that this is a government which is not willing to take any risks, always trying to play it safe, 
always just making decisions up to a certain point and never going any further, never really even presenting a long-term strategy. Merkel has never presented long-term strategies and that is becoming more and more obvious. So, you know, you can muddle by for a while and she's, 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 you know, she's been very, very good at, at always, you know, keeping, you know, keeping ahead in, in some ways, uh, muddling through crises. She's, she's the chancellor who's been seen as being able to overcome crises. But I think, you know, there is a limit to that. And I think people are seeing that. And um, she's gone into this crisis quite being quite an unpopular chancellor. And I think, you know, she's not going, it's not going to pick up. And I don't think that her party is, is going to profit uh, in, in a great way. There's nobody there who can take her place at the moment. So everything is really open. There are a lot of contradictions. So I think uh, James' question was also interesting. Yes, Germany does have a diagnostic medical sector. And I think many of them are doing a really, really good job. There are several companies, German companies, which are you know, about, you know, saying they might uh, come up with a vaccination. We don't know if that's happening. We had a company which was very quickly developing tests. They, the, you know, we know that Germany was good at testing very quickly. What's the use of these tests? We don't know because the country has been locked down. So very few people seem to have been infected. What's going to happen if we have a higher rate of infection in the next month? Another thing, a very critical situation for the government. So I think everything is still, um, is, is still open. Yeah, so I, I think that's all I can say. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Thank, thank you to, to both our speakers tonight. Uh, just a quick reminder that these events are free. Uh, we're trying to keep them as open as possible. So if you can see your way to giving us a bit of a donation at academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate, that would be great. Even if it's just the price of a pint, that would be wonderful. To keep up with the, all the future discussions that are ha taking place, also it's worth signing up to our newsletter, which is at academyofideas.org.uk forward slash newsletter. Right, I am going to unmute everybody. Thanks to Rob, Daniel and Sabine for that very interesting economy forum. If you'd like to come along to the next economy forum, head to academyofideas.org.uk and sign up for our salons and forums. Make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and, as Rob says, if you've got a bit of spare change, think about giving us a donation at academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. Stay tuned on this podcast for more events and recordings and we hope to see you soon. Thank you.